We are continuing in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 3. Um, we started Matthew in the beginning of December. So if, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, you can feel free to grab some of those off the podcast. Um, but let me, uh, let me kind of give you a, a, a quick synopsis of what's happened really fast and where we're going and what's going on. We've done uh, the first two chapters of Matthew, and we kind of entitled, we, we did, we actually did, we entitled those two chapters, um, <laughs> Coming King. And so the idea um, that we know is that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's wanting them to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the king that has been told about and talked about and spoken of and written of in the Old Testament. And so um, in, in the first couple chapters, Matthew is telling us about this coming king that's going on. And then from three and four, there's a little bit of a shift. Um, and you can see it in the end of chapter two. We're still reading about Jesus as a baby whenever he says, and, <clears throat> and he lived in a city called Nazareth. All that was spoken by the prophets that might be, that might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. Um, so that's basically still dealing with his childhood. And then verse one of chapter three switches and it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. So all of a sudden we fast forwarded all the way to John, John the Baptist's life. So um, this is a little transition where we've talked about the coming king and now we're moving into something called preparing for ministry. Um, Jesus is going to start his public ministry very soon. And so in chapters three and four, we're going to be looking at his preparation for ministry um, and what that means for us and, and, and what that looks like for him. So um, as I said, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. So as we're going through this text, as we're reading it, as we're studying it, there's really kind of two, two different ways I want you to think about. It. And I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between the two um, as we're studying through it. The first thing is that um, Really, obviously, as we're going through verses 1 through 13, um, John the Baptist is being described in the first half. And then in the second half, John the Baptist is going to have conversations with Pharisees and Sadducees. He's going to have conversations with these people that are Jewish. Um, but the, and that's kind of the first way to read the text. And that's more the way that we would all read it as we're you know, reading it devotionally. But as we've kind of been talking about the entire time, Matthew is writing this book to a Jewish audience. So as you're reading it, you want to also think, all right, I'm going to look at the conversation that John is having with these Pharisees, but also I want to kind of take a step back, and I'm going to do this some. I want to think about why Matthew is writing these particular words in this particular way to a Jewish audience. And we're going to go back and forth between those two as we, as we go. But before we do anything, um, let me pray and, and ask Christ for help. Lord, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for an opportunity that you've given me to be able to come here and preach. Um, and Lord, I, I thank you for my friends here. I pray that as all of us look at these particular words from, from this particular section of Scripture, that um, we would come with open hearts and open minds and, and thinking about the gospel and realizing that you are calling us to a particular kind of lifestyle as a Christian and that um, you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit and you've given us the promise of Jesus to empower us to be able to accomplish those things. And so um, you're not coming today demanding something that we can't do, but you're coming demanding something that you have done for us and given us the power to walk in. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for myself as I see and, and read and study and as my friends, we see and read and study that we would hope in Christ alone. God, Please help me speak your words. Please help me as I, as I read a text where John the Baptist demands repentance, that I would be balanced and couple that with the hope in the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. Lord, I just pray for your help today. I know that I need it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, if you or I were getting ready to go and train for a marathon, what would be some of the things that, that we would need to... Let's make it more realistic. Um, a 5K. Let's just be real. I mean, seriously. We're never going to... Well, maybe some of like two of you, but honestly, we're never going to run a marathon. But let's just say a 5K, something that's just like three miles. Um, <clears throat> man, that's hard too. But let's just say we were going to, we were going to train for that. What would be some of the things that we would need to do? What would be some of the preparations that we would need to make? Um, we would probably have to start exercising. We'd have to start actually running. We'd probably need to eat differently. We'd need to, like, there would be a list of stuff. Um, well, 
as we're looking at this, this is um, Jesus preparing for his public... The next couple chapters are Jesus preparing for his public ministry. And in particular, this whole chapter 3, uh, Matthew is going to focus in on John the Baptist. And we're going to look at John the Baptist... Uh, um, in, in the first 13 verses about who he was and what was his message. And as, as we go to next week, we're going to see that this man is the one that baptized Jesus. And so there's a, pre- um, a preparation for ministry that's happening for Jesus as he's going into, especially in chapter 4 where we see the temptations and things like that. Um, so here's what I want us to consider. Kind of a, kind of a double meaning as we're considering pre- preparing for ministry. Because clearly Matthew is telling us about the preparation for ministry for Jesus. But as we're looking at that, I want to consider, um, all of us, that we would think about a preparation for ministry for ourselves. Okay, let me, let me read a verse to you. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this. Um, I'm going to read 18 through 20. Uh, you can turn if you want, but this is, this is just an idea that Jesus is preparing for ministry. And if you're a believer, you are now a minister. Like, it's not like I'm, I'm a... I'm a Christian, but I don't really, you know, I'm not a minister or anything. The Bible's going to tell you different. You might not be a pastor. You might not work on staff at a church, but you are clearly in ministry and you are clearly to always be preparing for ministry. Let me just show you that really fast. In in 18, it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And here it is. This is for every single Christian gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So every person here that is a believer has been given the ministry of reconciliation. You are now a minister of the gospel, and your job is to go and reconcile lost sinners back to God. And let's, let's keep reading. It says this, that is, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we have that. God's not going to count your sins against you if you would be reconciled to God. And look at this. Therefore, we are, this is beautiful language. I mean, consider this, that whenever you go as a minister to tell somebody the gospel, this is how it, it is biblically. This is what it actually looks like biblically. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us to someone. And when we say these words, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So every single one of us has a ministry, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a Christian, you are a minister. And so as we're looking at this preparation for ministry of Jesus... In particular, as we're looking through 1 through 13, every single one of us has a ministry of reconciliation. And there are some, some guidelines that we are supposed to be going through to prepare for this. So it would be really easy as we read this text and say, oh, this is John the Baptist calling people to repentance, telling them to confess their sins, and he's baptizing them, and he's telling them they need to bear fruit. So th- it would be really easy to think, this, this is a text for non-believers to come get saved. That would be some, somewhat true, but this is also a text for believers. This is a text for believers to show them how to hope in the gospel, prepare for ministry, because every single one of us, since we are ministers, need to think about this. Our preparation for ministry, just like if we were going to run a 5K, we got a list of stuff we would need to do. Our preparation for ministry, if we are Christians, is this. Repentance, confession of sins, and bearing fruit. That is our preparation for ministry. And every single one of us is a minister for in Christ. And every single one of us should be doing these things. So um, let me go ahead. And for those of you that are writers, I'm going to go ahead and give you the whole outline to, to begin with. So you don't have to think anymore. After you write this whole outline, you can just put your pen down and just kind of don't like check out. Like don't think about lunch, but, but stay with me. All right. So here's here's the whole outline. First thing is, we're just going to be looking at the life of John the Baptist. Verses 1 through 6, we're just going to be kind of looking at the question about who he was. Who was John the Baptist? And we're going to talk about that in verses 1 through 6. And then in the second half, 7 through 13, we're going to look at what was his message. Who was he? Verses 1 through 6. What was his message in 7 through 12? And his message was, was kind of two-pronged. There, there's two parts in it. The first one is repent and confess. And you can see that um, in verse 2 where he says repent. And you can see that in the end of verse 6 where he says they were confessing their sins. And that's, that's, a, that's a first one thing. that you, There's repentance and confession. And then the second part of his message is once you've repent and confessed, the second thing is that you should be doing is he tells us that in verse 8. Bear fruit 
in keeping with repentance. So, verses 1 through 6 is, who is John? Who is this guy? Verses 7 through 12 is, what was his message? And we're going to see his message that the first part is confession and repentance. And as we confess and repent, then we're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And remember, this is our preparation for ministry. If you're in Christ, you are a minister right now, and you should be constantly preparing for that. So, <clears throat> we're, uh, we're going to just take it verse by verse now and kind of go all the way through and look at verses 1 through 12 and let you see how this unfolds and who this guy John was and what was his message. Now, let's look at verse 1. It says, In those days, and remember, we're looking at it two different ways. We're looking at it as just the story of John as he's talking and interacting with these people in this, in this particular verse. And we're also considering the fact, why is Matthew writing in this particular way to these particular Jews? Why, what is the point he's trying to make to them? And how does that relate to Jesus? All right, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. So in those days, we have literally fast-forwarded from the previous verse about 25 years. So we just finished Jesus' childhood, and Matthew just, you know... In the words, in those days, as fast forwarded 25 years. In those days, um, John the Baptist came. That right there is just a huge sentence. Huge sentence. And this is why. Um, this is showing in that particular line. In those days, John the Baptist came. That particular line is just filled with showing us the faithfulness of God. God is faithful in keeping his promises. Always faithful in keeping his promises. How is that so? How is in those days John the Baptist came showing me that whatever promises God makes, he is always faithful. And you need to believe this, that God is faithful in keeping his promises. You can't go through life without considering the fact that God is faithful in keeping his promises. Why is this verse full of that? Well, if you just take about two pages to the left, um, the book of Malachi, um, some people call it Malachi, but it's not. It's Malachi. Um, Malachi, my Old Testament professor used to always say that. Um, Malachi 4, the last words of the Old Testament. The last words of the Old Testament. This is what he says. Um, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, look at this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike down the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's this last words of the Old Testament promising, I'm going to send you Elijah, and he is going to turn all the children of God back to me. Well, and then basically we go through this kind of dark period of 400 years where nothing's going on. And Israel is, is having problems, and Israel, the people of God, are kind of falling away. There's always this pattern of falling away, coming back, falling away, coming back. And they know this text. They know when Elijah comes, he is going to turn all of our hearts back. Well, let's look at something else. Uh, Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. And this is why I'm going to show you how God is always faithful. Matthew 17, um, 10 through 13. Remember, the last words of the Old Testament are telling us that Elijah is going to come and turn the hearts of the people back. Matthew 17 says this, And then disciples ask him, this is right after the transfiguration, this, that's basically where Jesus kind of went up on a mountain and revealed himself in all of his glory to some of the apostles, and they were just like, whoa, this is way bigger than we thought. Um, and so they're coming down, and he said, and the disciples ask him, then why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah, and Elijah is just an Old Testament prophet, just a guy that was really powerful, uh, kind of man of God, who lived and walked with God, communed with God really closely. And it says, I answered, Elijah, <clears throat> verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of God will certainly suffer at their hands. 13, here it is. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. All right, so the prophets of Malachi, or the prophet Malachi is telling us he's going to send Elijah and he's going to turn the hearts of their people back. And then all of a sudden, verse 3, 1, here it is. In those days, John the Baptist came. God is keeping his promise. He is sending Elijah 
And he's keeping his promise. And John will, in fact, start turning the hearts of his people back to God. So, I mean, just just in verse 1, this is so huge. And that's why we're going to see here, as he's going to quote in verse 3, Elijah, he's going to help. Remember, big picture, why is Matthew writing to the Jewish audience? And why is he doing what he's doing? In verse 3, he's going to help that Jewish audience see John the Baptist is Elijah. Here it is. So he came preaching in the wilderness. He came preaching in the wilderness. Um, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand we're going to come back to the repentance here in just a second but he introduces this character john the baptist here in verse one john the baptist now um, john the baptist is not the most seeker sensitive type of guy Um, if he was a pastor today he would have a really really small church because you know just by looks alone people would come but he might not necessarily be their pastor but he has a he has a really short Quick, concise message. But people respond like crazy. Um, and we see also when Jesus comments on Matthew, I'm sorry, on John the Baptist himself, this is what Jesus says about Matthew. What Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen no one that is greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, in Jesus' words, was a great man. No one's ever lived that's been greater than John the Baptist besides Jesus. Um, so John the Baptist is just an amazing, amazing man, although he's a little bit you know, eccentric. Um, and he says he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then verse 3 says, For this he is, I'm sorry, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said. So Matthew is, is letting the Jewish readers already see here. All right. Um, John the Baptist is this guy. In Isaiah 40, chapter 3, there's a text here that says, The one of the voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. So John's, Matthew's wanting them to see. This guy, John, is the guy that's being talked about in the Old Testament. This Old Testament text that's being, being talked about is whenever the Lord himself was bringing people out of exile and back into the promised land. And then Matthew takes that text and he says, that text right there is also not just talking about that, but that applies to John. And John is the one who is the voice crying out from the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his path. And he is Elijah and he's preparing the way for Jesus to be the one that's going to come and save us. Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's constantly wanting to point out to to the Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, verse 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Now this is a, a very straightforward, succinct message. It is it is calling for immediate action. John isn't the kind of guy that comes with really wordy or verbose message. He just is very concise, very pithy. He's not going to soothe you. He's not going to placate you. He's just going to come here and he's going to make the, the hearer stop, search his soul, and listen. He speaks with power. I mean, just repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see later on, just people are coming out of everywhere. They're just coming. I mean, with this short, concise message. He is powerful with the way he speaks. And I just want to say, do you know, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think this is extremely helpful. Do you know people that are like that? Do you know people that when they speak, Everyone stops and listens. You could say, or I could say, the exact same thing that they say. And when we say it, you know, some people might listen. But when they say it, far more people listen. And when they listen, not only do they hear, but they also act on these words. They're like, you're right. I got to, I mean, they just completely listen to them all the time. And you're like, I just said that. But for some reason, when they say it, it just lands with this huge weight. And they're just like, oh, you're right. And you can see the power of God just breaking in their heart of stone and changing everything. John was one of these kinds of gods. And, and praise God that he sends men and women like that in our lives. Praise God that he does that. But a little side note that I think is, is helpful is asking the question, why? Why does that happen on some people? What is special about these kinds of people? And clearly we can just say, well, it's God that that does it. The Holy Spirit chooses them to make them a powerful speaker and they just amaze us all. We say the same thing. When they say it, it just crushes people. And I say, I'm like, man, I said that. But um, I think there's a little bit more besides also um, clearly the aspect of God. But on our side, on our human side, what is it? Um, And I just kind of jotted down some ideas here. And the reason why I'm going to say all this is because I think this is a good 
exercise for us to consider and think and shoot for and, and strive for in our lives. That we would want to be people that whenever we speak, God would want to use and God would use in power. And this is, these are some of the things. That if we were to appear in the lives of some of these people, that their lives day by day, they would be men and they would be women that are so deeply in love with Christ that they simply cannot get over the gospel. They just can't get over it. Um, they would be people who are out of joy, are in the word and in prayer constantly. They would be someone that leverages all of their resources to move people towards the mission of God. That they are the kind of people that love people, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what kind of socioeconomic class they're from. They love people and they really strive to kill sin in their life. They are extremely disciplined people. They're not lazy. They don't find themselves constantly making excuses, but they're disciplined people. And may God be gracious to all of us that he would send and raise up men and women like this in our church. That he would send us people that would speak with authority. And when they do, that we would hear it and we would be resolved to make changes. We would be resolved to hear the Holy Spirit talking to us and say, that is exactly the truth of God. May we have people that can speak the wisdom of God to us. Um, John had this kind of air about him that when he spoke, people listened. One pastor was considering this direct message of John, and they're saying, is this, is this too direct? And he said this, Men today have kind of lost in large measure the sense of the sinfulness of sin. Um, it is useless to preach the gospel of grace of God to men and women who have no realization of their need for that grace. And so there is this sense in which we need to preach direct messages like, you need to repent, but we'll see John's message always couples with hope in Christ. Um, so there is, a place for, there is a place for direct language that calls for action. But more than that, it always follows by offering out the sweetness and the preciousness of the gospel of Christ and the beauty that reminds us to having Jesus Christ as our Savior. One other word on this word, repent. Um, metaneo in the Greek, metaneo. And you've probably heard this before. Lots of people have talked about it. Um, it's more, it's more, it's mostly brought out as it's feeling sorry for your sin and then having a change of mind, a change of mind. And, and that's, those are true. Like in the Hebrew, it's, it's feeling guilty. And then the Greek word, it's a change of mind, but a little bit more. D.A. Carson, just brilliant guy, says this. What is meant here is not merely an intellectual change of mind or just mere grief. So this idea of repentance isn't just a feeling bad and changing your mind but a radical transformation of the entire person. It's a radical change of life. When we hear this word repent, there's a, there's a change of life that happens. It's a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in, and we see it in verse 8, fruit keeping with repentance. So repentance always... This is so key. Repentance always points us to Jesus. Repentance doesn't just leave us feeling horrible. Repentance always points us to Jesus, who is the only one that's, that's able to make atonement for our sins. So it's a radical life change, not just feeling bad, not just trying to change your mind, but it's a radical life change where we will start bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and we only are hoping in Christ. That's what this word um, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this kingdom of heaven is, is, is Jesus' message. He, he's going about, and, and especially John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is a, an already not yet kind of sense where the kingdom of heaven um, is here and he's setting up his kingdom, but it's not yet because he'll come back and set it up fully. Um, so Matthew is writing to this Jewish audience and he's telling them that John the Baptist is this guy that's been talked about from Malachi, and he is the Elijah that's coming and is going to start turning your hearts. Now, a little bit about who he is, and this is just some interesting stuff. Now, verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. And this leather belt isn't kind of like you go over to the mall and you get yourself a belt that's got a little buckle. It's more like just a, just a hide. You know, he just ties that hide around. Um, and it says, John the Baptist wore a garment of camel's hair, probably hand-sewn. Um, he lived out in the wilderness, and he had a, a, 
a leather belt around his waist, and his food, not probably not exclusively, but definitely part of his meals, were locusts and wild honey. While wild honey sounds okay, locusts do not sound okay. Locusts are the little yellow to greenish cricket-like grasshopper things. And he just, and that's what that was his, that was his deal, man. He loved those deals. Um, um, and so, um, <laughs> the crazy thing is this. Um, it, why is Matthew telling us that? Why does Matthew say, oh yeah, by the way, this guy that could preach really well, he wore animal skins and ate, and ate bugs. Um, is he trying to just help us see that oh, John doesn't necessarily, you know, he's not really slick with the ladies. I don't think that's the point. Um, I think that what he's trying to help us see is this. Um, there's a text in 2 Kings. There's a text in 2 Kings that says, let me kind of give you an, an idea. Elijah, whenever he was, whenever he was um, a prophet, some, some got to give him a message to go tell the king. He said, hey, king, um, just to let you know, things aren't going to work out and you're going to die soon. And the king's like, oh no, who, who's this guy telling me this? So he sends 50 people over to Elijah and Elijah's just kind of standing up on the mountain looking at him. And they're like, we hear you saying that uh, things are going to happen. He's like, oh yeah, watch this. Fire from heaven, bang, just consumes the 50. And they're like... Well, they're not like anything. So the message gets back to the king, and the king hears this, and he's like, oh, my gosh. Well, let's send another 50. So he sends another 50, and they're like, hey, uh, what's this message you're saying? Oh, yeah, fire from it. And it's bang, consumes those 50. And they're like, all right. So the king goes, and he sends another 50. And this time, if you read it, the guy, the spokesman of the, of the third 50 is like, please just consider our lives. Please just consider, we, we like living. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a rephrase, but that's what's going on. Don't call down fire from heaven on us. We just want to know your message. Um, and so it says this, um, when the king's asking about who's this guy that's, that's telling me that I'm not going to live, it describes Elijah in this way. In 2 Kings 1.8, it says, They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So this guy is describing Elijah. And he says, this is what he wore. A garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So why is John telling us that this crazy... Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew telling us this crazy guy John is wearing this? Again, because the Jews knew the scriptures, pointing to them and saying, this is Elijah. John the Baptist is Elijah. He is the one that's going to turn our hearts towards Jesus. And so I don't know about the locusts, it's just... A little side note, but I think this is interesting language. Um, let, let's just look at the transition between 4 and 5, because I found this just to be puzzling. All right, we got this crazy guy. He dresses funny. He eats bugs. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region um, about the Jordan were going out to him. I mean, isn't that amazing? Crazy guy. And by the way, everybody just came to him and listened to him, and they were ready. Like, So it doesn't matter... Honestly, and I've said this over and over as we're looking at the genealogy, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how um, non-gifted you think you are or how eccentric or how much on the outside of normal you think you are. God can use every single person because it just got through telling us how a little bit different this guy was. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, he's being used to call scores of people to God. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John is baptizing them and they're confessing their sins. They are publicly being baptized. Publicly being baptized for this. Um, They were repenting because that was the message and it was being coupled with confession of sin. Their confession and repentance of sins was a very public thing. Everyone knew that they were repenting and confessing of sin because if you see someone being baptized, you know they're repenting and confessing of sin. Something to consider about the way maybe we confess and repent. Um, I'm not saying it's like you stand out in the street and you just confess your sins to everybody in the world, but I am saying... God has always designed confession and repentance to not be something that you just deal with privately, by yourself. No one knows. It's always something that you're going to people and trusting and sharing and telling them things that are going on. You, you know who these people are. They're the people that walk with Jesus. If, you could just, if I could just say, who's someone that you know walks with Christ that if you were to go to them and say, these are the sins 
that I'm struggling with. I need for you to hold me accountable and pray for me. Who is that person? That's the person that is the, your public person that you need to be totally engaged in with life. They need to be an active part of who you are. Because all of life, Martin Luther says this, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. The cross isn't just something that we come to and kind of get down at justification or at whenever we put our faith in Christ and then kind of walk the rest of our life doing whatever. The cross and confession is something that we come to and then the rest of our life is something that we live in. All of the Christian life is one of confession and repentance. That's why this message isn't just for unbelievers, but for believers who are preparing themselves for ministry. So that's who John was. Um, And we can see even who he was. What are some of the things that he has to say as far as his message, which is verse 2, repent, and verse 6, confess your sins. Now, going to verse 7, it says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers. (laughs) Now, this is amazing. The Pharisees and Sadducees joining together to come confront John. They weren't the best of friends. Um, This is kind of like, man, I I tried to think of people, and I don't think this is going to land with everybody unless you're really into This is like Nancy Pelosi and Sarah Palin joining together to go fight for something. Or I don't know any other, I'm not really cool and hip and don't know a whole lot of like rappers or musics and people that hate each other. And maybe like, I don't know like a lot of people that hate each other, but people that really hate each other, if they join together to do something, that's what this is like. There's some differences for sure. Like Pharisees were the legalists. They strove really hard after a, after a life that was really devoted to Christ. They were serious about um, keeping themselves ceremonially ceremonially, that's a hard word, clean. I'm not even going to try it. Uh, they didn't want to be contaminated. They didn't want to hang around people that were sinners because they didn't want to catch the sinnies. Um, they believed in the scriptures um, completely, but they also, more than the scriptures, they believed in what were the oral traditions. So the scriptures have these rules, but the oral traditions also have these extra rules. We're going to keep all those things just to make sure we were absolutely clean. And they believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They were a little bit of a kind of a, uh, in the Pharisees' eyes, compromisers. They were okay with the Greek culture that was coming in and setting up itself. They were fine with that. Um, most of the high priests were Sadducees. They didn't believe in an a- afterlife. And they held to the scriptures. But the oral traditions, you know, not so much. And so you can just see, they had lots of fighting. They were both Jewish sects, S-E-C-T. They were both Jewish sects um, among some other like Essenes and Zealots and and such. But these two were kind of the most prominent of all of them. And they fought with each other a lot. But we'll see, as as we're going through Matthew, we're going to see sometimes where they come together for a common cause. And when they come together for a common cause, you can just mark it down. It's bad news. They come several times together to question Jesus and try to make people not follow him. So when they come together, bad news is coming. So here it is. They're coming together. And when they came together, John the Baptist, again, not the most secret sensitive guy, looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. I mean, clearly with little Genesis 3 overtones, you know, the serpent, um, Genesis 3 overtones, calling them, in essence, children of the devil. We see that in John 8. We see in Matthew 23, 33, where Jesus calls um, the Pharisees, broods of vipers. So this is not a, this is not a compliment whatsoever. And he calls them that, and then he tells them this verse. I mean, this is I mean, the second half of seven is pretty interesting question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or really tough translated kind of verse. Um, who deluded you, Pharisees and Sadducees, in thinking that you could evade the wrath of God? You can't. That's kind of the question that he's asking. Who deluded you to think that you can get away from it? Um, and then he tells them this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is huge. Um, if repentance is going to be genuine, it must be accompanied by fruit bearing. If there is an inward change that happens. It must manifest itself outwardly into God-glorifying conduct. If true confession and repentance and faith in Jesus has happened, it has to have expressions of fruit-bearing. You don't have eternal security if you don't bear fruit. 
That's, that's the message. And um, it would be really easy to just blast you for not having fruit. But the point is not to blast you for not having fruit, but just to bring you back to yourself and consider, is my confession and repentance real? Do I, if this has truly happened, it has to happen that fruit bearing has happened. Paul says it this way in Romans 7.4. This is the way Paul says it in Romans 7.4. Likewise, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You, you are possessed by God. He, he owns you now. He, he, he has bought you. That's the picture from Hosea. He has bought you. He says that you have belonged to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And here it is. In order that we may bear fruit from God. Yes, God has, has pulled you away from the law in order that you don't have to go to hell. In order that you may be forgiven for your sins. In order that you may now um, have perfect communion with God. But more than that, in order that you would be used by him to bear fruit for him. So don't, let's not miss the fact that outward manifestations must always be coupled with repentance and confession. So as we're preparing for ministry, as we're going through our mindset of God has given me the ministry of reconciliation, my daily work, the thing I'm supposed to be doing is always finding sin, confessing and repenting, not in a sense that it's going to assure my justification because I'm already justified. God sees me as completely forgiven. There's therefore now no condemnation who is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But as I'm working out my sanctification, as I'm um, working out my salvation with fear and trembling, as I'm going through this, there is a sense where I'm confessing and repenting and good works are always supposed to follow. Always. And John back to the story, knows the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he knows. They're coming out here. I mean, honestly, there's a big crowd. And they see an opportunity for, for leadership. They see big crowd. I like being over big crowds. I'm going to go out there. I'm going you know, to get dunked. I'm going to get in there. So maybe I can rise up to some leadership. And I can be over all these people. And I can have some more status. That's all that's going on. And, and, and in some way, John sees that in their lives. And I, I pray that that's not the case for us. That we just don't have fake repentance in order that we can just be elevated to a status in the eyes of men. But he sees that and he says, bear fruit with keeping with repentance. Who told you you were going to be able to flee the wrath of God with your false repentance? And he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, all right, here's the deal. Like, as soon as he, he, as soon as he hits them with that, their first thoughts are, are you kidding me? I'm a child of Abraham. Abraham is my father. Abraham, I mean, the guy, we are related to him. That's their first thoughts. And he, are, he's, he knows their thoughts and he's going to say, verse 9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up, raise up children for Abraham. So don't claim the fact that just because you're related to Abraham, that you're all of a sudden like part of the family. You're in the kingdom. Um, that doesn't mean anything. And then he says, I mean, this is... Very, John the Baptist, man, he, he doesn't mess it up. Like He doesn't mess around. He says, these stones right here, God can raise up children for Abraham if you want. Stones will be better of children of Abraham than you, Pharisees. That doesn't land well with them. Like they're not, They don't like that. Um, Paul, in the same idea of this, and Romans 9 kind of gives this answer, where if people are trying to claim, if Israelites were just claiming, I'm a father of Abraham, so I'm good. Paul answers this in, in Romans 9, 6 through 8. Um, there, was, there was an idea where if God has come to save his people Israel and they're not getting converted, the word of God's failed. God has failed. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, God has not failed. Let me, let me talk to you for a second about that. Um, just because people that are related to Abraham aren't getting converted, to Christ doesn't mean that God has failed. This is what it says in, in Romans 9, 6 through 8. It said, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So it's not who you're related to that makes you a child of God. It's the fact that you have been born again, not born the first time of Abraham, but born again of the Spirit, and that now you're a child of the promise. 
If you have put your faith in Jesus, that is what makes you a child. And so John's just clearly pointing this out to him. Being a child of Abraham doesn't mean anything. And then he gets even more direct with them. Listen to this language. that He's talking about them as the tree in verse 10. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. This is drawing attention to the pending judgment that is on them, which he referred to there in the end of verse 7. And he's saying the axe is laid at the tree. Judgment is at hand. And... It is going to happen at any moment. And this isn't make, to make them think, oh, then it's just too late. The axe is on the tree. Oh. And for you, it, does, it doesn't make you think, and it shouldn't make you think, well, the axe is on the tree. Everything's over. Oh. It's to help you see judgment is imminent. Therefore, confession and repentance, and today is the day for salvation. Today is the day, if I'm a Christ follower, to confess and repent. It's not to think, well, since it's imminent, I guess I missed it. Instead, it's to help us see repentance is now. Repentance is now. Now, here's the deal. If we just, if we just stop right there, it's really heavy. I heard John Piper once say to pastors, this is even before I was a pastor, several years ago, he, gave, he was giving advice to pastors in a Q&A, and he says this, pastors, listen, it's just not helpful week in, week out, if all you do is beat up your people. It's just not helpful. In the end, they'll be self-defeated and they won't bear fruit with the way that God wants them to bear fruit. And so my goal here is not to just bash you over the head with confession and repentance and say, get it in gear. I want to be like John here. In verse 11, John shows us all our hope. He points out our only hope. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He is pointing out the grandness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is infinitely worthy of all praise. His sandals were not even worthy to carry. His dirty, sweat-stenched, mud-saturated sandals are so holy that we are not worthy to be able to touch His feet. We're not even worthy to pick them up. But that man right there, Jesus... That man died for us. He is the man that loves you, and he is the man that loves me. John is pointing all of us to our only hope, the man that is infinitely worthy of all of our praise, Jesus Christ. He is mightier than we are. Praise God he's mightier than we are because we can't defeat sin on our own. We can't live the Christian life that, the way that he's designed. It's only by the gospel and the power of him living in us that we can. So John is pointing all of us to our only hope, which is Christ. And he says this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Promising this power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us in order to live the life that he's that he said, which is repentance, confession, and bearing fruit. And then he says this. Verse 12 is just, man, verse 12 is amazing. His winnowing fork. Now this is a, an illustration John is going to draw out from farming. And in this, he's wanting to illustrate to us the, <laughs> the strength and mightiness of God, of Jesus himself. And a winnowing fork is kind of like a pitchfork. And what they would do is they would kind of get up on kind of a top of a little bit of a hill where there was going to be a breeze and they would get the grain and they would get a pitchfork and they would throw up the grain and everything that was grain that was good would fall down in what's called the, the threshing floor. And everything that wasn't good, that the chaff would just, because there was a little bit of a breeze, would just be blown out. And that's what he's saying, that Jesus is this farmer with the winnowing fork. And he says... His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Those who are believers will go into the barn. We'll go with him into heaven and be with him forever. And then he says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, there's, there's no question here that John is wanting us to see a reference to hell, a reference to the pending judgment of those who don't practice confession and repentance and bearing fruit, that their future is hell and unquenchable fire, everlasting. But that doesn't have to be our future. Verse 12 is, the chaff doesn't have to be us. It can be that we are the wheat. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So all of us need to, all of us need to consider our lives 
and how it lines up with verse 8. Are we repenting and confessing sin? And as we're repenting and confessing sin daily, are we keeping in accord with verse 8, bearing fruit? You, You just can't be comfortable with sin. You can't be okay with it. God has never said that it's okay to be comfortable with sin. He's saying that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If we're really repented, then there must be continually outward expressions of that. Husbands, wives, you're loving your spouse better. Parents, you're, you're teaching your children about Jesus and teaching them to hope in that. Roommates, you don't get mad and yell at them whenever they leave their towel on the floor or they eat all your food. <laughs> Those who are Christians and there's lost people in your life, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It breaks your heart to know their future, that they have unquenchable fire in their, in their future. And you share the gospel with them. You look around the city to your neighborhood and the neighborhoods in the city and you see needs, you meet them. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if we do, we're promised that He will gather His wheat into the barn. We're promised eternal life. There's, there's a little story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David, when he was king, everything was okay. Everything was finally fine. Like He defeated all the people. God had set him up on the, on the throne and there was no more battles to fight and everything was like beautiful. And he's just sitting there and he's thinking, man, I had such a good friend in Jonathan. I want to know if there's anybody in the, in the family of Jonathan that I can show kindness to. And they come back and they say, yeah, there's a son. He had a son named Mephibosheth. And he's lame. He can't walk. Whenever he was five, there was an accident and he can't walk. And he said, go get him because I want to show kindness to him. As a matter of fact, he brings him here and Mephibosheth like falls and says, what am I? I'm not even worthy to be in your, in your sight. I'm just your servant king. And he goes, you're going to, this is the language, you're going to eat at my table always. You're going to eat at my table always, Mephibosheth. As a matter of fact, you are going to be just like one of the king's sons. That's not just a story of David showing kindness. David is king, bringing in someone who is lame or injured. King Jesus is bringing all of us in who are sinful, who are messed up, just like him. And he says, I want you to be at my table. I'm going to bring you to the barn. I want you to come and sit at my table forever. You're not a servant. You're going to be a daughter. You're going to be a son of the king forever. You're always welcomed at this table. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Even in 2 Samuel. The Old Testament is filled with stories that are teaching us to hope in our King Jesus and showing us that He's our only hope and that He loves us and He has great, great plans to do things through you. If you're eccentric like John the Baptist, you're not out of the realm of being used by Him. But we're all on ministry for Christians. We're all in ministry. We're reconcilers. And we're calling people to confession and repentance. And then we're bearing fruit. So, however this is landing on you today, like, there's lots of places that there's application points here. Perhaps you don't know Jesus, and you do need to put your faith in Christ. You need to say, I want, and I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross, and I want to be a Christian. I I know that I have not been a Christian. I believe that His work on the cross was for me, and I want that. Or maybe you've just been a, a Christian that's just not really had a pattern of confession, repentance, and bearing fruit. And you're, you're aware of that. Verse 8 is hitting you in a way that you've you never thought. Bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. That's supposed to be the mark of my life. Even though the axe is at the root of the tree, it's not saying that it's too late. It's saying now's the time. That's the beautiful thing. And he's pointing you to verse 11, that Jesus is the one who's mightier than all of us. He's the one that did the work for us. And this beautiful promise that we will be in the barn. Maybe all of us are just kind of having a 
We've had one of those months. You know, we've had one of those years. And it's just been difficult. There has been tragedy in the family. There has been despair. There has just been one hardship after another. And just hearing the words that you are a son or daughter of the king is what you needed to hear this morning. And you just need to stand and and praise Jesus that no matter the hardships now in this short 70 years, for ages upon ages, all the tears are wiped away and we will be with Him. We are the wheat that are being brought into the barn to get to have communion with Him forever. That's the hope that you had and needed to hear today. So our pattern, revelation response. We've heard from His Word. You haven't heard from me. You've heard from God. And I pray that I've been faithful. And now it's time for us to respond. If you don't know Jesus, put your faith in Him today. Come talk to me. I'll be right here. If you're a Christian and you, don't, you, you haven't been walking with Him, come talk to me. I want to pray with you. I want to be able to have the honor of talking with you about things. And maybe you just need to stand and be in His presence and sing praises to your King. Because this beautiful picture that you have been brought to the table forever. However it's hitting you, I just pray that you would be faithful with the way the Holy Spirit's leading you this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to go into our time of worship and feel free to respond as the Lord's leading you. You might need to sit, you might need to pray, you might want to stand. You can come forward and pray however you want to respond. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this day that you have given us, that you have let us be able to come here and consider the life of a man named John and how he can be and his message can be the exact words that we would need to hear today. We thank you for Jesus, our only hope, whose sandals we are not worthy to even strap. We're not even worthy to tie his shoes. But he is our only hope. He is the one who died for us and he's the one who loves us. May we worship and reflect back that joy in worshiping him today. I pray that you would be with all my friends and how you might be dealing with them this morning. If they have confession and repentance that needs to happen, that you would lead them by the Spirit through that. They would see the God of all comfort. And if they just have hardship after hardship, Lord, I pray that you would be the God that comes in and comforts them and the hope of eternal life would be the thing that they can grab a hold of and see the beauty of. We love you, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name.